Pi. Welcome to 21 Wire Live. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us for this live broadcast. Uh, we're streaming out right now live on YouTube, Periscope, and also at Facebook on our 21st Century Wire fan page there. So you can watch the live stream, and this will also be available uh, after the show at 21stCenturyWire.com as a, a video file if you missed any of the live broadcast. Now, we're joined by a very special guest uh, for this program. Uh, we're going to be talking about propaganda. Uh, this is a very wide subject. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about war propaganda. This is something that our readers uh, and listeners at the Sunday Wire are also very familiar with over the years. We've covered this in, in relation to Syria uh, and other conflicts. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the, the propaganda paradigm with regards to the current crisis right now, the global uh, pandemic, the issue of lockdown. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different facets of this. And to help us uh, with this discussion is uh, someone who I regard as uh, very much, uh, uh, I would like to say, an expert uh, in this field, but certainly uh, well-published and uh, has a lot to offer uh, on this topic. Uh, his name is Dr. Piers Robinson, and he's joining us on the live link right now. Thank you very much for joining us, Piers. Hi, Pat. It's a pleasure. And uh, as I said before, uh, this is a very deep and wide subject. And before we get into it, uh, I wanted to uh, just give you an opportunity for those people who might not be familiar with your background and your expertise, your studies, uh, the work that you published as well uh, on this topic. Uh, if you could just uh, give us a little bit of a summary of um, your, your background and your interest uh, in this topic. Well, my background is, is I worked as an academic looking at questions surrounding media and international politics. And uh, I mean, my early work was on the CNN effect and these notions of humanitarian interventions. And then I worked for many years in a number of uh, British universities um, as, a, as an academic and researching these areas. And then really in the last 10 years, I've become particularly focused on propaganda. I think as an academic who studied questions of media and media impact on foreign policy and conflict, I started to become increasingly aware that propaganda was one of the most important elements that we need to look at in terms of how people's understandings and behaviors and beliefs are formed and actually primarily how power is exercised. And so I've looked and I've published on the uh, Iraq war and the, the so-called uh, dodgy dossier or the deceptive dossier on Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Um, and then in more recent years, been looking more generally at the 9-11 global war on terror and on the conflict in Syria and doing a lot of work on uh, the issues surrounding the OPCW uh, controversy regarding the alleged chemical attacks in Douma, and that's been the, sort of my main preoccupation for, for a couple of years, primarily examining questions of propaganda, British foreign policy, and American in, in relation to the war in Syria. Uh, and, and I now uh, sort of involved in a number of working groups. I'm an independent uh, scholar, but I'm involved in a number of groups, the Organization for Propaganda Studies, the working group on Syria propaganda and media, um, the working group on 9-11 global war on terror, um, really exploring all of these uh, issue areas or exploring propaganda across a number of key issue areas, primarily conflict, armed conflict. Um, and that's, that's what I spend most of my time on these days. 
Now, on the on the area of, of war propaganda, uh, I know you've been right in the thick of it uh, with regards to the Syrian conflict, uh, you and your group, really from the beginning, also the OPCW, as you mentioned, uh, that scandal uh, that is uh, related to the Syrian conflict as well. And, uh, and also you've taught extensively uh, on this subject over the years. I know, so you've kind of formulated some um, systems, if you will, uh, and ways to look at uh, how this machine works. Uh, and one of the sort of texts that's often quoted uh, by uh, people in this field will be one of the main ones anyway, is the work of uh, Ed Herman and, and Noam Chomsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the uh, famous book called Manufacturing Consent, uh, The Political Economy of Mass Media. And so this is normally a, a starting point for this a mainstream discussion uh, on this. Certainly, I, I don't know if that's been your uh, experience in academia or not. Um, but, you know, f- for the war propaganda issue, uh, I think it is very uh, useful. It's very um, uh, illustrative of how various systems are working in conjunction with each other to produce this thing called consent. We talked about the Washington consensus for foreign policy last week with our guest, Brian Berletic. Uh, but more specifically, um, is, is this a text that uh, you've you've worked with before that you've included uh, in your teachings? Are you familiar with, with this book and what do you think about it? Yes, I mean, manufacturing consent is, uh, for many years has been a key text um, for critical scholars um, examining the relationship between media, political power, and and politics in democracies. Uh, it's it's an interesting manufacturing consent because, um, as as I think Chomsky and Ed, Edward Herman um, uh, are quite happy or were quite happy to say that. That the model that they generate is not entirely their own ideas. What what they have done is they've pulled together. I think what Edward Herman described as, as the key factors identified across the political communication literature, which helps us to understand why the mass media, mainstream mass media, um, end up uh, promoting a worldview which is compatible with powerful economic and political interests. And so the, the manufacturing centers are bringing together and does reflect really a lot of the critical work uh, in the field. And it is an important book and it's an important argument um, partly because it's been so widely adopted by critical scholars, um, but also because, you know, it does do a very good job of identifying some of the primary factors, some of the primary filters which work on mainstream media. And and so it's good for that. And I, I was, when I started studying propaganda and when I started writing about propaganda, what, one of the things I've increasingly come to argue is that manufacturing consent, although it's seen as a key text on propaganda, actually has relatively little to say about propaganda in in the sense of how propaganda is is produced and generated across various sites in society. Manufacturing consent is actually primarily about why the mass media ends up being an arm or a proper playing a propaganda role for powerful interests. It doesn't tell you much about how propaganda is produced, um, and it doesn't tell you much about how people's understandings of events can become manipulated through patterns of deception, coercion, and incentivization, and so on. 
Um, so whilst a useful text, uh, as I've argued in recent years, it, it doesn't really, I, I think, really get to grips with the scale of the propaganda industry in the West. It's, it's very much in the background of the book. So it's, a, it's an excellent book, but it but only takes us so far. Um, and, and one of my sort of objectors, and, and certainly with forming the Organization for Propaganda Studies, was tried to sort of bring more scholarly attention and public attention to this issue of propaganda uh, in, in Western democracies. Yeah, cer certainly for your, uh, you know, classic left-wing anti-war conversation, uh, that, you know, that's a, a sort of a book or a text that you can refer to to kind of get some common ground or understanding when you're having this conversation. Uh, and so for the first question is, well, now we're going to delve into the actual practical propaganda um, aspects. Um, what was different? And we'll, we're going to we're going to get into current events. Uh, we're going to get into uh, the global pandemic and lockdown. But before we get there, I think it's important to understand uh, war propaganda as, as a machine, as a mechanism. What was different, in your opinion, about a conflict like the Syrian conflict, as opposed to uh, previous conflicts. Uh, take Iraq, the Iraq war, for instance. What, what were some of the different things, uh, different challenges uh, from your point of view and sort of studying and analyzing it, but um, how it was deployed um, against the public, if you will, uh, by the vested interests that uh, were pro-war, let's say. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult job studying propaganda, and especially in recent years, because things have been moving so fast. And I don't mean just in the last few years, I mean in the last few decades, that, that keeping a handle on what's going on has been very difficult. And um, I think that having said that, I think if, if we I look quite closely at the Iraq conflict, and I think when you get to the point of the Syrian war, which of course has been going off 10 years now, extraordinarily long conflict and of course it's a conflict which is occurring in the context of the post 9-11 regime change policies and conflicts which emerged out of that and, and what really has struck me certainly in relation to the Iraq conflict which I looked at quite closely is that I think with the Syrian war you have an even more weakened mainstream media um, than you've had before so Herman and Chomsky used to talk, wrote in the 80s about how the mainstream media is dependent upon official sources, that it doesn't have the resources for proper investigative journalism in a way that it had perhaps in earlier eras. And I think those factors have, have quite simply intensified in the context of the Syrian conflict. And so whereas with, with the Iraq conflict, you could, you could in 2003, you could look around and find sort of some dissent and questioning going on in some of the mainstream media. This has been almost entirely absent in relation to Syria. It's gone. Um, and I think that is a result of, I think it's likely to be a result of the, of the further weakening of the mainstream media as, as institutions which are capable of, of asking questions independent of, of their governments. But the, the second dimension to, I think, the Syrian conflict is, is the way in which uh, propaganda operations have been outsourced okay, the use of NGOs, the use of organizations which seem to be at arm's length from governments, but which are serving the purpose of, of mobilizing opinion, of presenting the war in a particular way. 
And and I think that development, and of course, you know, the the, the, kind of the examples which come to mind are in the UK context, the the funding and support of the Syrian civil defense, the White Helmets, but also Incostrat, uh, based in Turkey, which was supporting uh, groups within Syria trying to overthrow the Syrian government, and also activities in relation to the OPCW and the question, question of alleged chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Uh, and you, you have this sort of network of NGOs and sort of former military working in these organizations which are still funded um, but by Western governments, but which appear to be independent, but which are playing this role of trying to encourage a particular understanding of the conflict. Um, so whereas with the Iraq war, you know, you could, in, in, a, in a way, you could look at the British government, you could say, look, there's, there's the dossier and there's the um, head of the Joint Intelligence Committee signing the intelligence dossier off an Iraqi WMD. This is coming out of the British government. Um, that connection is cut with the Syrian conflict, um, which in, in a way makes it harder to t detect the propaganda. And, and I think in my view, and, and I, had, I just read and reviewed a book on, on this question of hearts and minds and propaganda in the Middle East. And, um, and this was making the point about the degree to which such operations are outsourced. Uh, and the use of contractors and so on. And, and I, I think that's, that's an important story of the Syrian war and one that will, has been told by many people, such as yourself, Vanessa Beattie, other uh, independent um, journalists. But I, I think it's a story which will, will be hardened up in years to come as, as more and more people come to write about the conflict. Um, and, and of course, you know, the other example is, 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 as they have a book out at the moment, Bellingcat, of course, you know, this, this uh, a notionally independent um, uh, sort of uh, investigative uh, open source intelligence investigators, um, but really by any measure clearly closely located to Western governments. Um, and that again becomes part of this outsourced um, propaganda machinery that, that, that we see in place. Um, and it, and it's, a, it, it's a real, the last thing I'll say, this is a real problem for accountability, okay? Um, because, you know, say with the Iraq invasion, you could, you could turn around and say, well, that was the dossier created by the British intelligence services. Maybe Alistair Campbell had a hand in it, maybe not. Maybe it's more the intelligence services who are helping to create a dossier which gave a very misleading assessment of, of Iraq's WMD capability. But you could at least point at the government and say, this is your responsibility. Um, and that's more difficult to do, I think, with the Syrian war. Um, not that it can't be done, and I think it is being done. And I think the working group I'm a part of on, on Syria, Propaganda and Media, has done a lot of, made a lot of progress, along with other independent journalists, as I've mentioned before, in starting to map that apparatus. Um, but it, it does become more challenging to do, definitely. But I think that's, that, that's one of the big stories with the um, Syrian conflict. Yeah, the, well, last week we, we, t we were trying to deconstruct uh, with my guest, Brian Berlitic, you know, how the consensus is arrived at, because this is also very important in selling something like a war. Uh, so this is really uh, very, crucial to how propaganda is used and whether it's effective or not, how the operations are, are, are designed, uh, who's involved in them as well. 
And so we talked about, you know, how this foreign policy machine works. And I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with most of these concepts, but uh, we'll just uh, do a, a very quick uh, review of that process. And then we're going to try to use this to overlay on a couple of other situations. So it really started with the, the, the heart of it in, in terms of how this diagram works or this theory works is that you have transnational corporations, you have big finance uh, if you believe that these are the interests that drive uh, governments at the end of the day, or, or the most influential uh, at the end of the day, global capital, if you will, there's very various different ways to describe this. Uh, and they put money into something in America called the think tank uh, industry, if you will. Uh, you could also put the NGOs as well uh, into this category uh, as well, human rights NGOs. And from there, the think tanks uh, supply the ideas, the policies, the uh, pundits, if you will, uh, to the mainstream media. And you see them on all the main networks. A lot of these are the uh, members of these various different organizations or they're journalists who are also getting their information from those same think tanks, uh, politicians as well, who are getting them from lobbyists, from think tanks coming through that same pipeline. And then that helps to form the Washington Consensus. Uh, and, and then it moves on, and that's really how U.S. policy is arrived at, long-term continuity of policy. Uh, and then it moves on to market stability, and that market stability is is really what the transnational corporations and, and big finance are looking for at the end of the day. So the, in, in this theory here, this is how this consensus is arrived at. So propaganda is very, very important. Uh, to make this work. It's really the grease uh, that makes this machine work uh, in terms of uh, uh, influencing public opinion through media. And so you also have corporations directly funding media as well. That supercharges this process uh, as well. Uh, and again, the NGOs are, are a big part of this in terms of creating that human rights conversation that was really used uh, a central part of the Syrian narrative, the Libyan narrative, uh, everything connected with the Arab Spring as well. Very much a human rights conversation, pro-democracy, pro-freedom, international freedom, and things like this. Um, so look, looking at this, um, so this is a way to manufacture consent, uh, a type of way you could say theoretically that, that consent is manufactured um, for war. Uh, so, um, if, if you take this and you, let's say, have another effort for propaganda, and this is where I want to, to we're going to do a radical departure from war here. Uh, these transnational corporations, they could be Boeing, they could be Lockheed Martin, they could be Raytheon, General Electric, uh, Citibank, JP Morgan, uh, BAE Systems. All of these are companies that are involved in the war effort generally. I mean, I'm just naming a few, some of the bigger ones. They also have uh, overlap with the board positions of major uh, mainstream media conglomerates. Certainly that's the case in the United States. You see overlap, some of the same people sitting on the boards of defense and media as well. Comcast or uh, Disney, NBC International, General Electric owns, I believe, NBC as well, CNN, Warner 
Time Warner Communications. So there's, that's been well documented and proven. So now we have a different war uh, that's that's happening right now, or a, a different crisis. Uh, we have a global pandemic, um, and the corporations that are central in this are not necessarily defense contractors, but a lot of them are, you could say, uh, transnational pharmaceutical companies, biosurveillance companies, uh, some of the same companies that really came into their own post 9-11, that type of, like like the security industrial complex. We have another, a new industrial complex that's uh, emerging right now in the wake of, of the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So my question to you is, do, do you think this uh, similar type of uh, system is, is applicable when you're, when you're looking at war propaganda and arriving at consensus or policy? Um, do you think there's some similarities in, 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 in how would you describe this current global crisis right now um, in, in this sense? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is, is that the the um, graphic you, you, you're presenting there is 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 a graphic which is 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 pretty much compatible with what Herman and Chomsky were arguing back in the '80s, and and of course it's called manufacturing consent, the political economy of the mass media, and 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 the key words in there is this notion of political economy. It's this idea of networks of politically powerful and economically powerful groups who um, uh, through a variety of mechanisms uh, produce propaganda in order to maintain a worldview which is compatible with their interests. And that, that's the sort of the basic underlying uh, sort of logic of the propaganda model as articulated by Herman and Chomsky. And when they produced it, they applied it to war and conflict, but they were always very clear that this applies more generally to um, Western societies and democracies. We live in democracies and democracies in societies where there is very large concentration of wealth and power into particular economic actors and, and political actors. And and really, and that's the case today. And when we see something with COVID nineteen, it's the same. It's, we we have, we have the same. We have an, an issue, an event which is occurring in a context where yes, we have uh, powerful actors, powerful economic and powerful political actors, and. Um, that reality means, uh, as as has been, I, I pointed out at the beginning of the COVID nineteen issue, is that that reality means that we must always be extremely alert to um, powerful actors exploiting circumstances for political gain, um, and that's certainly you know, that's, takes us to, to where we are with COVID nineteen. Um, so, in general terms, you know, to answer, yes, it, it, this is applicable in, in that sense. That whatever's going on with COVID nineteen, it's it's occurring in context where we have now a, a greater point uh, to a greater degree than any point I think in our, in our history is concentration of power and wealth into certain institutions, companies, political actors. Um, and you know our our political nose should be telling us you know they're going actors will exploit this and then it's our task to try and find where that's occurring and then to try and stop it and hold them to account which is of course 
you know, in a sense, the the, the rationale for Herman Chomsky's pro, uh, manufacturing consent was to try and give people the tools with which to understand the way in which power is exercised, and then to try and counter that and to make the world more democratic and for there to be greater accountability. Um, so that kind of spirit of, of manufacturing consent should absolutely be being applied to the situation we're in now and trying to understand you know, who are the winners, who are the losers, who is playing to exploit this crisis, who isn't. I mean, there are people who won't be people who will be responding to it in a, in a sort of an honest, straightforward way. Um, but you know the question of, of, of where where the power lies in this and who, who might be trying to seek advantage out of it is, is a critical one, which we should always and we should always be doing in a democracy, right? We should always be asking those kind of questions. Um, and of course, you know that doesn't mean that you're uh, sort of saying that things are unreal necessarily or re et cetera, That kind of you know, when people create a straw man. You, know, you question something. So, oh, what are you saying? This is all a giant, you know, the, the conspiracy theory label, and so on. And of course, you know what one is saying is not necessarily that. One is saying that powerful actors exploit things for their own interests. If, if you want to try and smear that as conspiracy theory, well, you know, you're just smearing it because, you know, <laughs> hate to break the news, but that's a fact of politics. <laughs> you, you have powerful actors who do uh, engage in in activities which are to shore up their own interests and deception and manipulation and incentivization, coercion is all part of that. Um, that's the reality of the world we're in. And so that's what we're, we're talking about here. And it's not to exclude necessarily any possibilities as to what's going on, but it's, you know, the, the, the key thing here is, is that there is more going on. There's always politics going on. Um, there's always politics going on in relation to the war on terror. There's always politics going on in relation to COVID-19 and virus. And as you said, sort of how, how to respond to them, what to do, etc. And And those are the things which we should be critically exp exploring at times such as this. And for sure, uh, that framework is, is as, as applicable to the current situation as, as I think it is to war and conflict. Um, and, and this is really always the point of, of that book and, and that set of arguments by Herman Chomsky. And uh, one, one of the great uh, pieces of work that I know that you've done, in my opinion, and many others, is uh, also your work uh, in analyzing the Chilcot report and then using that to connect to uh, the timeline of events of the Iraq war, specifically the how the United States and the UK government were uh, c colluding, conspiring, if you will, and that it was a, really a foregone conclusion and that the public face of uh, of what they were talking about was really just really just for show there there was an absolute mm. lockstep to go to war mm. you you've more or less proved that uh, in, in a number of the points that you've um, analyzed on that but f from what you learned from that and one of the things I, I took away from your analysis of that plus the media reporting at the time was that there was this inertia that there was there, there were big forces at play and once this train was moving down the tracks it couldn't be turned back at, at some point. And then, and I think that's uh, mm. uh, important in relation to the current crisis, uh, because not every country has adopted the same uh, responses to COVID-19 mm. in terms of lockdowns, et cetera. So what I'm asking is uh, the political the political side of, of events, uh, which you know very well from your work on the analyzing the Chilcot report, 
is it possible, you know, or do you think that um, there's an argument to be made that that inertia, that political inertia is also could could also be at play here where instead of going back the governments or politicians really double down, it, it becomes a bigger issue once things are yeah. moving forward. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that's a really good thing to bring in there, this issue of the global war on terror and, and you know, the, some of the work I had done on that. Um, because that, that was, that's precisely the, the issue with the global war on terror is the thing gets kicked off and then before you know it, you've got war after war being generated as a result. It becomes a, 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 a train which is on the tracks and cannot be stopped. And of course, the global war on terror hasn't stopped really. I mean, I know it gets renamed in some ways, but you know, we could well be seeing war with Iran, um, let alone situations with, with Russia and China. Um, so when you when you have these policies implemented, and of course after 9-11 you have the Patriot Act, you have this sort of inf closing down on civil liberties, you have bolt surveillance of the population and, and so on, um, as well as all of the kind of you know, Islamophobia associated with, with, with the, the war on terror. And, and, and that has dramatically changed our societies over the last 20 years, as well as kicked off wars which have killed enormous numbers of people um and i think that's precisely the concern here with, with covid19 you've had the event you've had um covid19 occurs you had with 9-11 you have the event and then after that you then have policies being solidified and then you're on a train and you can't get away from it and i, and I guess the big fear at the moment is that the kind of it's very clear who's advocating lockdown and restrictions. It's very clear who is advocating a particular understanding of this virus, which, um, you know, sort of the zero COVID ideas or the vaccine is the only solution. And they're all quite out in the open about this, but you can see that the kind of power and money and, and force behind that, that, that will actually restructure potentially our societies talk of the war on domestic terrorism in, in the US, for example, all of these are, are incredibly concerning and should be incredibly concerning. And and, and this is what I think you know, any, any propaganda analyst should, this is what they should be trying to focus on now, is trying to understand what, what political and economic consequences are emerging out of the COVID event and which are being solidified and which are being driven to take us down a particular path. Um, I'm probably talking far too gently about it in the sense that it's, you know, it's extraordinary that we're in the, we, we have the infringement on our civil liberties that we have now. It's extraordinary through lockdown. It's extraordinary the infringement on freedom of speech we have through big tech censorship. Um, it's got so bad now that even, you know, incredibly mainstream and, and extremely well-known academics are complaining of censorship. For example, Sinetra Gupta from uh, University of Oxford, a, a leading um, academic studies uh, who are epidemiologist. And you've got people like that who are saying that we're being, you know, censored, etc., and we're being attacked as well. And uh, and I think that that's that's the the, the very worrying and scary thing about the situation we're in now is that if anything we see this intensification of or concentration of power actually um and, and what have we seen in the last year we've seen i think even the wef itself um 
sort of talks about the K-shaped recovery where there's been this huge upward transfer in wealth, the, the, the professional classes and, and big tech are coming out of this looking good. Um, and the people who are really getting hit hard, working class, lower socioeconomic groups and so on. Um, and in, in that mix of this kind of, you know, intensification of, of inequality in society, we then have this kind of emergence of politicians. And I, and I saw sort of Merkel, Angela Merkel, uh, yesterday talking about in Germany, well, we're not sure when we can start to give you your freedoms back, <laughs> which is incredible. I mean, who would have thought we'd be at uh, this point um, you know, a, a year ago? It's extraordinary. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think um, an intensification, in a way, of the concentration of political power that we saw accelerating following 9-11 on, in the context of the global war on terror now, as it were, segued into this issue of sort of virus and control and, and, and fears, exploiting people's fears over... Um, I guess what culture is quite a deep-rooted fear, isn't it? So if you go back to the Black Plague and, and so on, um, and you think of Hollywood movies like Outbreak and so on, um, this is something which, you know, unlike terrorism, where I think a lot of people thought, well, I'm probably not going to be, you know, not likely to be attacked with COVID-19, everybody becomes a threat to you. Anybody could have this virus. And, um, and, and this becomes a very powerful sort of fear which can be readily exploited. And frankly, from what I've seen over the last year, I mean, that does seem to be what is going on. Um, I mean, you know, I think sort of Peter Hitchens, the, the Mail on Sunday uh, journalist, talks about the, you know, isn't it extraordinary that we, this is probably the first um, virus in history where we have to be regularly told about it, you know, warned and have big, um, scary adverts, etc. Um, you know, sort of people, and this, 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 this idea that there is an exaggeration or a ramping up, I think is, is reasonably well established and certainly corroborated by the fact that we know that there are behavioral psychologists and spy B in, in, in the UK, um, working to uh, what was their own terminology in, in that document, which came out to sort of increase the fear levels. Um, we see big tech censoring scientists who are questioning what's going on. Um, and so all of that sort of you know, reinforces this idea that there is a ramping up of levels of fear um, for reasons which we need to get to the bottom of. Um, but we don't have, um, we, we're certainly not in a situation where there is, um, as it were, properly independent reporting in the mainstream media of what's going on. I think that's, I, I don't think, you know, a few years back, we you know you'd be you'd probably be accused of being a conspiracy theorist when you make those kind of claims, or just you know a traditional lefty critiquing the media. But I've seen this. I've seen so many high-profile people saying this very clearly that you know there is propaganda going on. That there is these sort of expectations on broadcasters in the UK about sort of you know not allowing too much dissent. There's the money flows which you've mentioned, which I think have been identified by some people. Um, and then, then you have 77th Brigade, you have people who have asked questions and actually pretty tame questions getting hammered in social media and smeared. Um, I think that, again, to name her again, but uh, Professor Gupta was called a conspiracy theorist <laughs> for 
arguing that, 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 that from a medical point of view, that the, 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 the lockdown response was not the way to deal with a new virus, that there are better ways of handling that. Um, and I've lost track, to be quite honest. Didn't uh, our friend um, George Mondiot had an argument with um, was it Naomi Wolf last week, um, and it seemed to follow his his um, an editorial by him in, in the Guardians saying something along the lines that we needed, you know, rigorous some kind of rigorous censorship and gatekeeping of what information can be heard and what information can't be heard. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting point. Now, first thing I'll say is uh, this idea of big tech censorship, that's not a problem that uh, we had to overcome as a society or any particular country uh, in in the Iraq war, for instance. Uh, the, the coverage was through mainstream media, international corporations, local, national media. And now you have a global uh, town square, if you will, uh, that's really mediated by a very small number of people, uh, mainly in Silicon Valley, but they're also working with governments. Governments are putting pressure on them to censor as well. And every time you go on Facebook or YouTube uh, or sometimes on Twitter, but a, a COVID-19 information roadblock appears. Uh, if you post anything on Facebook, for instance, that mentions COVID, uh, YouTube, it's under every single video that's mm -hmm. applicable and is always linking back to official sources to the government. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that there's a scientific consensus that changes by the minute, by the way, uh, but still it's a scientific consensus that emanates from government. This is a whole new paradigm. So the Chomsky-Herman uh, analysis really would need to be updated. There would need to be a major overhaul uh, to to keep pace with this new aspect of it now that I think is actually the dominant aspect and the traditional media is really lagging behind because as we know from the polls, peers, the trust in mainstream media, it's a, a mm. historic lows. And so people don't regard it as, as credible or trustworthy uh, so everybody, but yet everybody's on the main social media platforms on the internet. Google is also very censored in terms of what the search results are for any story uh, on the f the first ten pages, let's say. And that wasn't the case at the beginning of uh, when search engines came out. They did they didn't they weren't gaming the search results like they are now. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, everything's being funneled to, to to a very sort of narrow. Uh, a band of information and narratives right now, but uh, yeah, just quickly your uh, your view on that. I I, I think that it is correct to say that the um, sort of the, the models from early eras need updating, given this information environment we have, and given the technology that they have available to them. I mean, this is something which I think people have written about. I've written about it a little bit, um, and it's certainly the case that the, the, the social media environment you know the, the dynamics are the same it's big powerful corporations having uh, excessive influence over these um information spaces um, um but it's the technology available to them because you know on the one hand the internet is this kind of liberating democratizing what has the potential for that but then the technology itself allows the propagandists the manipulators much more scope for targeting information for and, and algorithms etc and really the technology they have now is, is, is quite seems to be quite extraordinary in terms of how it can manipulate the information space and and 
if, if what you are getting at is, is that things are possibly worse. I think in some ways, yes, things are worse. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are still people fighting <laughs> and trying to use the internet for, you know, a, as a proper open source of information and to get for proper free speech purposes. They haven't been able to close that down entirely. But, um, I mean, in my mind, the jury's out. I mean, I, I think the situation is worse than it was before. I, I do think that, you know, mainstream media in an earlier era would have had at least a more a stronger culture and, and financial backing to engaging a degree of criticism. So in the Vietnam War, you know, you, you did have some impressive bits of journalism at certain points in that conflict. And I think that's just completely absent. If you look at Syria, it's gone. I mean, there's, there's, there's no Walter Cronkites. <laughs> there's no Cy Hirsch's in, in the case of Syria in the mainstream media. They're all independent. So I, I think it has got worse. Um, it, at the same time, what we're seeing at the moment, and the point I made earlier, I think you did, that this is, these seem to be very extreme times. And I think they're extraordinarily extreme times and very scary times. I mean, this is something which is affecting, I'm sure you feel the same. And we, with our friends, families, you know, people are extremely alarmed about what's going on at the moment. So these are extreme times, but it's also times in which, because, because things are becoming more extreme, they're also becoming more obvious, right? The, the potential for more people, I, I, the, the numbers of people I've seen, you know, I won't name them, friends and family, um, who, who said, I, I never thought before that the BBC was, was quite as uh, untrustworthy as I do now. People who would normally sort of, you know, thought, well, the BBC is quite good, it's, you know, et cetera. The numbers of people who've woken up to the fact that, no, the BBC is, is, is not independent of government in a way that it presents itself as is much greater now. So there's much more potential for people to wake up now. Um, as to the scale of propaganda, the realities of mainstream media, um, and you know, there's hope in that. Um, but it, it is, I mean, I think is, is everyone holding their breath a little bit after um, what happened in the US election and with Biden talking about this, you know, this domestic war on terror and the kind of the, the threat of ever increasing control over the information based upon, you know, protecting people. I think everyone's waiting to see how, how bad is this going to get? Um, and it, it could get worse. Um, it's, it's bad enough as it is at the moment. But then, you know, I, I think if that happens, I, I suspect, and, and my recommendation would be to activists is to start seriously about, you know, going back to traditional methods of printing and going door to door. Actually, you know, in some ways, it might be good if those of us who try to engage in free speech and free inquiry on, on the internet also think a little bit in terms of, well, you know, the old-fashioned ways of going door-to-door -door printed material, maybe we should not lose sight of that. Maybe we can combine these technologies because there's a lot less they can do about that, <laughs> big tech. And and I bet you if, if, for example, if you look at some of the mainstream organizations which have formed in order to question, for example, lockdown strategy, and I think in the UK that T4 for T4 recovery is, is, a, is a fairly mainstream one, which is critical of lockdown. You know, I, I, I bet if those organizations started to push out uh, sort of leaflets and going door to door, that would really 
um, scare <laughs> the government and the powers that be. Um, cause they think, well, how on earth do we handle that? Are we, are we going to start stopping people going door to door <laughs> kind of thing? Um, so, um, you know, what, I guess what I'm getting at here is that however bad things get with the kind of control that you're talking about, there are always moves which people can take to, to try to protect, you know, or to get the truth out or try to protect their right to free speech, which, you know, um, I know these are difficult times for talking about that kind of thing, but you know, but this is what democracies rest upon. Um, we need free speech. We need people to be able to express their opinions freely and without fear of being attacked. Because if we don't allow that, we don't have democracy. If if we don't allow that, we run the risk of powerful actors controlling the agenda and and, and what we think and what we do. Um, and and it all breaks down. We're we're, we're back to a, a different, a, a, a thoroughly non-democratic um, setup. And I, I, you know, you kind of think to yourself sometimes we shouldn't have to be saying these things. You know, is, isn't this obvious? <laughs> but I mean, actually, I, I think a restatement of what democracy is, what it involves, what free speech involves, right? It means tolerating opinions. It doesn't mean the right to threaten. Of you know, we know that's always been ruled out. But but this idea that people, you know, we need to respect people's opinions and listen to them, um, and allow them to, to express their, their views on, on on issues. And if, it, if it's a bad argument, you allow that argument to circulate and be challenged. Um, you don't suppress it. You don't try and censor it. Um, but there seems to be a lot of people and. Good old George Monbiot himself uh, need a, a good reminding of, of, of that basic democratic um, fact. Yeah, a, a lot of it is also, you know, the big conversation is the post-truth world. I think that was even the name of uh, Bellingcat's uh, documentary that I think they probably won an award for, maybe an Emmy award or something. Who knows? They're constantly being showered with uh, awards. But uh, th that, that's been the big uh topic of conversation the big kind of moral crusade of the liberal intelligentsia especially in washington uh, since the era of trump especially uh and russia gate uh again this is the same establishment that uh for five years has been pushing the uh the official conspiracy theory that the russians installed donald trump into the white house in 2016 and then they're decrying the post-truth world and blaming it on the internet fringe uh and things like this so the there's here is the problem uh in in that the the current the current atmosphere is so hysterical mm -hmm. and i i honestly think there's a i think there's a fundamental structural problem and it's not necessarily the internet and the free availability of information to me i think it's uh the structural problem is is is, is this shifting uh window where people are very dependent on official sources of information uh to to make it through a crisis or to understand quote what's happening within a crisis so the reliance on the experts reliance on quote the science the government uh, that 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 can be the only source, or uh, mainstream media outlets back to them again. Uh, they're validating uh, certain uh, facts, if you will, mm -hmm. um, 
So this this is what got us into trouble with things like the Iraq War, when the entire establishment mm-hmm. media turned their whole Titanic in one direction, which was weapons of mass destruction. And uh, there wasn't any really any dissent tolerated. We're having the same problem now. I think uh, it, there is an emergence of a lot of important arguments with regards to the global pandemic, like mm-hmm. like the PCR testing mm-hmm. uh, controversy as an example uh and but this isn't getting any airtime in terms it's not it's not altering the trajectory of of the of the discussion it's not changing policy it's not causing that pause to say whoa we're basing all of this in the in the same way that the weapons of mass destruction was really relied on the technicians the david kelly's of the world the hans blixes of the world uh the weapons experts uh mm-hmm. and, and then the media would defer to them we have a similar situation here drosten in germany is a good example uh with regards to the pcr machine um and so this that's the central uh data producer if you will that informs policy uh for lockdowns for for mass testing for for everything for travel restrictions closing borders is all based on the uh the technical capability of this test um and so, but the if the government's saying everything's fine, if the Times, the Telegraph, the BBC is saying everything's fine, CNN, Washington Post, no problem with the test, just ignoring it, uh, then you know we're, we're relying on the quote experts again, and uh, a politician. Politicians are what I'm probably trying to say is politicians are all too willing to defer to to pass the buck if you will to their science advisor to their chief medical officer mm-hmm. for fear of getting it quote wrong maybe yeah. that was the same with the iraq war peers i i don't know uh, but, well yeah. i mean th- th- this is it's an important area which is is quite close to my heart is, is this question of, of of experts and the academy and academia and I, I think one of the arguments I make about propaganda is that, you know, we sort of think of it, well, it's to do with PR activity, it's to do with the media and, and so on. But I think it, it's in my position is that it's been very clear that, um, you know, the arguments that Herman Chomsky make in relation to mainstream media, they apply to academia. And I, I wrote an article on this with um, uh, Eric Herring years ago and a special issue on Noam Chomsky saying all of these fields they work for academia and I think we're seeing this very clearly in the case of COVID-19 that academia is not independent in the way that it's supposed to be and frankly I think this applies to most institutions in Western society that sort of you know the idea of, of parliaments holding the executive to account the idea of the mass, mass media holding power to account the role of academics being displaced by think tanks who are funded by big corporations. All of this means that that we are living in a highly propagandized world where the institutions which are meant to be the bedrock of democracy um, are, are significantly hollowed out. And 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 what we one of the things we need to do is is we navigate through the, the nightmare of, of of the COVID response from governments is is uh, you know to recognise that and to start to try and fight to restore our institutions, restore the universities back to their places as areas of independent thinking, restore democracy within our parliaments, and so on. Um, deal with the think tanks, etc., and also critically 
to start to try to really work harder to educate the public and, and, and people, the people, and to give them the skills and the confidence to think for themselves and to challenge and to question. This is what we need. This is notion that um, something I noticed and I discussed when I gave a talk at a Labour Party group in, in, in Lewisham um, a year or so back was this idea that the schooling systems are, are not really cultivating independence of thought. And it's actually something I noticed somewhat in my time as, a, as, a, as an academic in university, as the A-level students coming in. And, and I think, you know, we have lost sort of uh, the, the kind of courage and independence of thought that we perhaps had in earlier eras. But what all of this means is that this is a huge exercise we have ahead of us to, to deal with the problem that we're in now, where we have such a concentration of power that I'd argue we don't really have meaningful democracy in any sense in the West. And that's largely because the institutions have been hollowed out and, and, and it includes the education system, you know, as, as I've been saying. And this is this is a big, long struggle now, I think, to try and get ourselves back to you know, building the society and the political systems which, which are democratic and which are going to work for people and which are, are not going to lead us into endless wars or lead us into situations where we have now, as as I think Martin Kulldorff, the American Harvard professor, pointed out that the COVID lockdown response is great for the professional classes. You can sit there at home and work at home. Absolutely hell on poor people and the working class who are terrified about, you know, about where the money's going to come from. You know, so we avoid that kind of, and this is your point about, about the left, is that the failure of the left to look after its core constituents, I think, is, is very clear in this case. Um, but this is going to need a root and branch reform of our institutions or restoration of our institutions. And it's going to be a big, long fight. This will be a, this will be a struggle, I think. And I hope we win. We might lose, and then <laughs> we're in trouble. Um, but but I think you know we will win this. But this will be a, a struggle, which I think will take up the the bulk of the remainder of our lives. You and I, I think, at the age we're at, um, and this is what we're going to be having to do for quite a long time. <clears throat> um, okay, a key so at least life will be interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, well, there's no doubt about that. Uh, too interesting for some people's taste, but. Uh, uh, the key thing you said there was taking responsibility for uh, becoming informed, uh, and you saying that th this has been ground ground away gradually over the years, whereby people are becoming dependent on Wikipedia and uh, you know these Ministry of Truth cutouts, uh, many of them online, for instance. Uh, people aren't reading as much, um, but that that really speaks to a point that was made in uh, Thomas Sowell who's an American academic, uh, he's at Stanford at the Hoover Institution. He, had a, he published a book, I think it was in uh, 2009, it was called uh, Intellectuals and Experts. And what mm. he, his argument was that the centralization of power or the cent centralization of authority into these uh, small uh, cliques or cadres of science, uh, high priests, if you will, of, of science or orthodoxy. The problem is if they get it wrong, it, it, the, the mistake ripples right across the system. And his argument was that in, in, if you look at history, knowledge, wisdom, information uh, is, is always spread out over a very wide area. 
And so the smart thing is to uh, allow the market to send the marketplace of ideas, if you will, to send back the signals as to what works and what doesn't. And this is how you form. This is a better way of forming a more accurate uh, consensus as to what the right policy might be or the right approach might be rather than to rely on a, a sort of high committee uh, that's almost untouchable, that's in a fortress, a political fortress, uh, really. And I, I'm, I'm going to say that this is what it looks like is happening now. I can, I can speak to the British uh, government science yeah. advisors. Uh, they've been wrong on just about everything from the beginning of the crisis, and they've just moved the goalpost. Their solution has been just move the goalposts. I think they're on the hundredth uh, goalpost move <laughs> right now. Yeah. And in the United States, it's the same thing. It's a very narrow, uh, monolithic uh, a set of ideas and policies, very difficult to move, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and for sure, I mean, this case and, and SAGE um, is what you're referring to. I mean, this is the criticism and the concerns that should be raised. And, and, you know, I've heard it many times now from various scientists um, that this is, is not an open, proper forum for evaluating all of the issues in relation to COVID-19. Um, quite aside from conflicts of interest issues and so on, and, and who's on various has various shares and various uh, companies, etc. Um, this is not what science looks like. And actually, in, in my own work on, on the OPCW issue, you, you see the same pattern. You, you see this sidelining of science, okay, and scientific method and scientific rigor. You see it in the case, of course, of, of the 9-11 issue and, and, and uh, the, the Alaska Fairbanks study and the NIST study into the building collapses. You see the same problem of, of essentially the corruption of genuinely independent, objective scientific process. And you know, the point I made earlier is that maybe at least things things have become so clear now with COVID and what we see with SAGE, and as you say, this also applies in the US context as well, where you have an incredibly narrow range of scientists, some of whom don't have direct expertise necessarily, um, who are running the show, the Drustons, the um, Neil Fergusons, et cetera. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that this, you know, ho I'm hoping uh, that as this comes to unravel in, in the coming months, maybe years, that this will be a lesson that will be properly learned, that, that we, you know, we need to encourage your point, diversity, um, ensure that universities are properly diverse in terms of range of opinions, um, that we're not sidelining, you know, professors simply because they hold views which um, are, are deemed too controversial. There's an awful lot of that going on these days because um, this is incredibly dangerous. Um, the, the flip side, I want to be provocative, and I know we're coming to the end, but provocative in all of this is that w one of the reasons I think that we're seeing so much propaganda is that many of aspects of Western society and policies are underpinned by very big deceptions, okay? And this is the argument, you know, I made about uh, the global war on terror and when you saw the Chilcot report and you see Tony Blair and George Bush discussing which countries they're going to hit and next kind of thing, sort of it, it becomes very clear that the, 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 the level of deception in Western democracies is very high across a huge range of issues now. Um, and, and, and I think that, 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 that is what's, that is what in a way is forcing, I think, the censorship, the propaganda being ratcheted up, 
Um, and, you know, societies don't live forever based upon lies or on, on, on these kind of scales. The, you know, the, the role of the West in the war on terror and what the, the conflict of violence that has occurred across the world because of what we have been initiating and doing, let alone issues surrounding 9-11, these are things which, and I have always thought, will come home to haunt us or our children or our grandchildren. So the Iraq war, you know, ultimately what was done there, the truth will come out. So these are things which have to be addressed. But these, these deceptions are very big. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing. You're, you're seeing a concentration of power. They're trying to, elements trying to hold on to power. And, and all they have left at the moment is a lot of deception and, of course, terrifying people over COVID-19 and offering them needles. It's not, it's not an awful lot that the, um, if you want to use a kind of Marxist term, that the ruling class has to offer these days. <laughs> but it's, it's needles and fear. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think they'll, that will carry on forever. I, I, I think there is an opportunity now for people to start the long, hard struggle to deal with all the problems that, you know, people like you and, and others, you know, like us who have talked and written critically about our democracies. We've been saying this for a long time. Um, and I think the problems that we've identified and talked about a long time are crystallizing and are becoming very clear now. So that creates an opportunity for positive change um, in the coming years, hopefully. I uh, I don't know if you have a I know we uh, we only plan to go for uh, for an hour I don't know do you have any uh, any extra time uh, I've got a few propaganda exhibits I got uh, I got a bit of extra time I I have got um evening meal and okay. family waiting okay <laughs> um uh, but so I I you know another ten minutes fifteen minutes okay um yeah I just wanted to bring your attention to uh, a couple of things. Uh, that just going back a little bit uh, to where we were, um, I did a basic paradigm here, um, just trying to look at the what it, what's the problem I'm having with this peers is how to it's the motivation, uh, it's the state of mind, it's the psychology uh, of of the of the public, and we we more or less know the psychological devices that are being employed by by government, and uh, so in terms of you know the war effort, as it were. Uh, this is this is what we normally would see. Uh, these two forces are kind of pushing against each other. On the government, the pro-war side, it's the threat, it's the security imperative. On the anti-war side, it's the moral, the ethical argument. Uh, then you have the emotional argument for war as well. Then we have the skepticism, the restraint on the the other side, the the anti-war argument. Uh, and we must act now. This is also something that we see. Uh, and then we want to no, wait, pause. We need to interrogate the evidence. This is what we see on the, the dissenting side, the, the anti-war side. Then uh, blame is very important, attributing blame uh, on the pro-war side. Preemptive strikes are usually the result of that. And then we have the precautionary principle, which is a, a, type, of, a type of a precautionary principle being uh, called for on the anti-war side. And we have the invocation of patriotism. This is this is something that we see with with the drive to war, and you see where I'm going with this in a minute as how we transpose this onto the global pandemic. And the the anti-war will make the moral case. Then both sides are making a kind of a human rights mm -hmm. argument. The pro-war side was it's the human rights argument. We need to save the people who are being oppressed. 
responsibility to protect, etc. And the anti-war side is also making a human rights argument where this war is illegal. This isn't right. People are going to die from the bombing campaigns. Um, so when we have this bat- this pitched battle of ideas, of political forces, uh, the, the, the moral argument is extremely strong, Piers, on the anti-war side. And it has won out in history, although in a delayed fashion, uh, eventually, it usually has a global consensus. It's it has a, a, a fantastic uh, constituency on the, the political left normally and moderates too, and also some conservatives as well. There's an anti-war vein in the conservatives. So it's this has always been very strong. And if you look at how Tony Blair fell from grace uh, is really because of the Iraq war. And was, there was really a moral, a moral argument behind his demise uh, that the Iraq war was immoral, it was illegal, and he lied about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in the end, although the, the the arc of history bends towards justice, as they say, as I believe uh, Martin Luther King said so famously, it does take a long time to to move along that line for war. So if we just alter this slightly for the pandemic, we see some of the same things, but things are getting a lot more confusing. Now the government or the pharmaceutical industrial complex or the pro-lockdown lobby, they ha- they also are making a moral argument. Things are much more convoluted. Uh, it's it's it is really under the sur- It literally gets under the surface of the general population in a way that a a remote, distant war and halfway across the world can't. Mm-hmm. And so this is the. I think this is there's a there's a major problem here in, in terms of making that argument for restraint. Both sides are making a precautionary principle type of argument, mm-hmm. although the pro-lockdown government side's not make, really making a precautionary principle for lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, we saw Dr. David Katz from Yale University, the Great Barrington Declaration. They've made a, a definitely a moral argument, a precautionary mm-hmm. argument against lockdown, for instance. But the government's not having it. Silicon Valley's not having it. Mainstream media is not really having it. They're not accepting that as a legitimate argument because, and we have the invocation of patriotism. So a kind of a revival of the blitz spirit. Certainly that's what we're seeing in the UK. Um, Saving lives versus human rights, you know, lockdown, uh, civil liberties issues. What I'm saying, Piers, is this is, both sides are canceling each other out on many of these different fronts. And it's extremely difficult to, uh, to, to, to make the kind of arguments that you might make in the past when you opposed a war, for instance. This is incredibly complex and multi-layered. But um, just your, your general thoughts, what are your first thoughts on this? Well, in some ways, I, I, I think I agree. I mean, I, I think this is an interesting exercise to go through and, and think through what are the key elements in relation to war propaganda and, and then how is that changing in the context of COVID-19? Um, and and I can see I can see some of the things that you're saying and, and how they bear upon the, the, what we're seeing at the moment. Um, I mean, part of me feels, it, and in carrying on your exercise, is that with war, you have this you know arguments which are charged with emotion, nationalism, patriotism, fear, and which 
are quite difficult in in a kind of scientific way to evaluate. So you know, you have a claim that this country is a threat, and and, and so on, and and in some ways, you know. Uh, go back to the Iraq war, well, maybe Iraq is a threat, maybe it could become a threat, etc. We're not friends, and, and, and those arguments have, have uh, in some ways, difficult to challenge. And what strikes me in the case of COVID-19 is, is that actually the response, the, 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 the policy response, i.e. lockdown and, and try to control the virus, as opposed to simply allowing the virus to do what viruses, other viruses do and allow natural immunity to build up. These are really very closely or very clearly located in scientific discourse. This is a scientific question, right? What do you do about, what is the best thing to do? What, 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 will, what is COVID? What is the best thing to do? And, and, and so on. And in, in a sense, it is amenable, actually amenable to very rational discussion and establishing a truth in a way that wars aren't. And I think that you know, the only way that, that, that that has been prevented in this case is, is that the kind of the degree of propaganda has just had to be ratcheted up, you know, to the point where, you know, you're attacking reputable scientists who are raising questions. And so I, I, I do, I understand the point that in some ways it seems complicated. I, I think it, it's, it's perhaps more different as it were, than actually necessarily more complicated. And, and I do think at the heart of the COVID issue, it is something which can be scientifically resolved if we allowed proper engagement between the scientists. This is, this is factual stuff. You can look at the graphs. You can determine, does lockdown work or not? And of course, this has been the argument of, of dissidents such as Peter Hitchens, is that, you know, this is just look at the facts. <sighs> Which means that the problem in itself is, is perhaps is, is, is potentially easier to resolve than the kind of pro and anti-war arguments. Um, is, is that's my kind of feeling. Um, but you know, just a, as a first off response to what you're saying. But but I think there is some truth in in, in what you're saying. Um, I, I do think that um, okay. Say in terms of war propaganda, you know, if you've got a country which is directly under threat, it's not difficult to mobilize people. Second World War, you know, people are like, sure, okay, we're in trouble here, we're in danger. Most of the wars that we've been talking about are wars where the West isn't under any direct threat, but it wants to go to war, so it needs to manufacture and propagandize in a very, in a very significant level. And that's how, what war propaganda has been about, I think, in the West since, since Second World War, to nearly all the time. It's been about sort of exaggerating threats, creating threats which weren't really there. Um, in order to justify military action. Now, in this case with, with COVID-19, we're talking about a claim about a virus which is going to, you know, kill you. And some people think that this virus is is equally dangerous to everybody in society, which, of course, is not true. Um, that, that there are high-risk groups and, and then the bulk of the population, it, it, it's not a high-risk virus, um, and less so, in fact, than, than the flu, I think, for, for younger people. And so on. Um, so, so you, you have you know this kind of uh, fear of a virus and making people fear it in a way to the exclusion of all other illnesses which are there. Okay, which were cancers and heart disease, etc. And part of me thinks that this it is more complex, but it's also this seems to be a very fragile propaganda bubble that we have here. 
that the idea that people will remain gripped with the fear of one virus, which which has whatever degree of lethality actually has it in in reality, but it but it's you know, and there's lots of arguments about that. But the idea that people will remain gripped and in a state of fear um, of something which is endemic now and which will come and go as all other viruses to the point where they're not thinking about other conditions i i think it will just implode in people's minds at some point i don't know when but i think at some point people will say well there might be risky viruses out there but there always have been and we have to live and you know I've just got a cancer, you know, I've got that cancer diagnosis, so I have to deal with that, or I've got the heart problems or my cholesterol, you know, and people will start to get a more balanced, realistic take on this. Um, so I don't know, I mean, I mean, I could be wrong, and, and you could be absolutely right in that chart you've created, but, but I, I would put out the, the possibility that it's not more complicated, um, that in a sense, they're, they're having to work harder to propagandize and and actually the issue is in some ways is is a relatively simple one and and then maybe i'm just being hopelessly naive here that, that people will just at some point do what i i mean i i've lost count of the number of, of quite conservative friends and family who, who i've spoken to who said right from the start saying well okay there might be this but this doesn't warrant doing this what about all of you know or old people being isolated i mean this is what the german professor bakti was saying early on saying you isolate people in in their closing years in their twilight years they don't see their family they don't see their grandchildren this is you know what would you i mean put it yourself in a spoon what would you want i mean if you're in old people's home and you've got maybe a year left would you want to be restricted or would you want to say well, i don't care I, mean, I might get the virus i want to see my grandchildren I know what I would choose. So I, I, in some ways, I think, is this more simple? And people will just suddenly realize, or everyone, I think a lot of people have realized. Um, and then this goes to this point, actually, I made before, that this is, this is a terrifying thing that we're all going through. And this concentration of power we're seeing is terrifying. And the exploitation of it by political actors, WF, whoever, is, is terrifying. But it's fragile. I don't think they can keep this going forever. Um, I think that with a global war on terror, they're able to say, well, there's terrorists out there and there'd be events here and events there and they keep that going. Although not forever. I mean, by the time I got to Syria, and, you know, we were kind of sort of working in, in unison with groups who were formerly Al-Qaeda and so on. The narrative was, was breaking down to a significant extent. Um, so that broke down eventually. But I think with this, and because this is so immediate to everyone's ex daily experience, and the people are like, well, this is a really directly affecting our lives. Uh, and then this, this, this capacity for people just to can carry on living in fear, um, I, I think, and again, it could, I could be wrong, um, but I, I, I feel that people are just, it's, it's going to burst. The, the, the bubble will burst at some point. And some kind of calm, considered um, sort of position will take hold as a consensus position. Um, it hasn't happened yet, as you just pointed out and reminded me. Um, but, you know, I mean, really, I mean, 
you know, when, when they are now talking, you know, about zero COVID, which is, uh, from what I understand from epidemiologists who I trust, is, is just a crazy idea. Um, when you see that being circulated and, and this notion of almost this kind of permanent lockdown, so we're going to lock down every time, every time a, we get a new variant comes in, oh, okay, we've got to lock down. I mean, this, this, is, this is not living anymore, right? Um, this is, this is, you know, we've caged ourselves and people will just go, um, and I'm sure a lot of people have done already. And well, even if this virus was actually considerably more risky than that actually is for most of the population, you'd be saying, well, I'll take the risk. Thank you very much. Reminds me of that John Travolta film from years ago, was it in the seventies and the early appearance where he's a boy in the bubble kind of thing. And uh, you find the sub bubble. I want to go riding on a horse with my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, at some point you just realize this is enough. <clears throat> um, and we can't be a billion miles away from that. Um, no, the, hy the hypochondria is uh, a sad, but it's not, uh, it's a very real thing. Um, and people are, have developed, uh, I think, habits and, and psychological uh, fixations and beliefs that are not going to go away um, anytime soon. And that's, that is, that's really heavy. Uh, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, I talk, I appear to talk lightly about all of these things, but I, I, you know, it makes me extremely angry when I see, and, you know, I have personal experience and, you know, my, my, my wife is a deputy head teacher and, and, and seeing the potential damage and long-term damage that this will be doing to people who will just get help for anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's it's a it's a miserable it's a miserable existence that we're setting up. You know, a lot of people for. I saw I saw a headline just the other day that was it alcohol deaths? Is it in Britain has just rocketed? Um, and somebody said, oh, we need to have an inquiry into this. And I think as, as Tara McCormack and also uh, Laura does point out, we don't need an inquiry. <laughs> This is obvious that this would happen, that people who are already on the edge, who are already suffering battles against alcohol you know, or, or whatever other drugs, um, this will push them over the edge, obviously. Um, and, and, and this does, you know, this is where I think in all of this, um, you know, there is going to have to be a reckoning and there is going to have to be a holding to account. And if we can get a proper scientific discussion going at some point where we get a clear, rational response to this virus, um, then scientists, and, and they know who they are, but scientists who have been propagandizing or scientists, for example, this issue of people such as Susie Mitchie and, 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 the, and the behavioral psychologists who have been willingly executing the policy through how do we how do we ramp up fear levels that's an ethical issue i you know those those academics need to be held to account and you know through either through mechanisms in universities or even legally i mean this is the whole uh ryan foolish you know, pcr um stuff against Ruston and there's little similar actions elsewhere i think beginning to develop um but people are going to have to be held to account for their actions in this. People who've been in positions of power and who have advocated policies, which have, you know, for example, you know, led to the old people being pushed out of hospitals into the care homes, um, everything associated with that. Um, you know, that, that, that needs, this needs to be looked at 
um, through and through, hopefully in the coming years. But this is serious. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This, this is uh, very, very worrying. It's, you know, that point I made earlier, it's, it's easy for, as the WEF said it's, itself, you know, if it, this is easy for the professional classes who can work at home, who've got state linked jobs, etc. This is, um, you know, I, I think was it the Chardonnay sort of holiday that one British journalist referred to it as, you know, um, it's not difficult and we can smile and laugh about it, but, you know, there'll be, you know, the family down the road who are facing the abyss of the business is going to go, the business can't carry on. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, this is, I mean, my personal view and feelings is, is that this is shaping up in a pretty big way to look like a, you know, a major set of crimes against our society and against people and people acting well outside of, of the bounds of their authority, whether it's Angela Merkel telling the German population, what, you know, we'll, we'll let you have your freedoms back when I decide, thank you very much, uh, through to um, doctors, medical professionals, advocating, academics, advocating various um, strategies. Um, I mean, for sure, if it's based upon sound science, they can defend themselves. But, you know, this is the issue, isn't it? That we, we seem to have a lack of sound science going on at this point in time um Here, here's the uh the new variant uh this is what the uk government has been running for the last couple of weeks uh, act like you've got it this is straight out of the behavioral insights team uh cadre at sage and this is like kind of a next level this is beyond uh, if you see something say something kind of uh the, the kind of linear war on terror world war ii type propaganda you know, Fritz is Fritz could be anywhere. So be careful what you say that those were the posters. Then the war on terrorists. If you see something, say something. Al Qaeda could be anywhere now. Now this is this is very deep and uh, very penetrating propaganda. So you need to act like you've got covid and then you're doing your part and you're a good person and you're obedient and compliant. Um, but it, it, this is really twisted, twisted stuff. I, no one's ever seen anything like this before. Yeah, this is this is extreme stuff that we're seeing in in, in these advertising campaigns. Um, one can only assume that the behavioral scientists are in the background on this. Um, and you know what? What is the result of doing this? I mean, you know, I, I was having a conversation with somebody. You know, what, what happens when you normally go to a doctor and, and a doctor, and you've got a condition, and it could be serious? Doctors will normally reassure you, even if the situation is bad. They they will you know reassure and calm you down. So, and, and even in the worst case scenarios, you know, remember a family who's a cancer doctor, you know, having to give people very bad news, and so on. You know, the, the message is what. Go out, live your life, do. Da -dum -da -dum -da -dum. This, this is what my, my understanding is that doctors and, and nurses and health professionals always do. And, but what do we have here? We, we just have people who have been told to order their life around fear and terror, which is an awful thing to do. Let's go back to the example of you know old people, you know, restricted from access in, in old people's homes. Uh, this is a terrible thing, you know, to do to people who who are not going to be here for very much longer. And people need to be allowed to live their lives, 
even if there are conditions. People need to live their lives even if they have a cancer diagnosis or have a heart disease or have any number of, of fatal diseases. You need to go out and embrace life, live life. That advert is all about making people scared. Um, and, you know, I guess as you know, commentators such as Neil Clark have been saying for ages now, it's all about control. This is about power on governments trying to keep control of people and using fear to do that. Um, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to be doing to people, um, as, as I'm sure, as I'm sure some people who've been involved, for example, in producing these adverts will realize at some point, at some point they'll realize that what on earth did I get caught up in? Um, you know, we do have historical precedents on, on the role of propaganda in, in Western countries and, and where it leads and how people get caught up in it and how people can't see the wood for the trees. Um, you know, and I'm not going to name it because people should know. <laughs> um, but, but we do, you know, there are warnings from history um, and, um, and people need to be, I mean, people who are caught up in this kind of promotion, this blind promotion of, what they're being told to do need to try to sort of regain their critical faculties and just think a little bit more deeply about what it is that they're doing. Um, and, and, you know, and in all of this, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what your experience is. I mean, you know, I, I think you're right to say that the situation is negative. I mean, I think there is always hope, but I, but I think, you know, people, I think people are increasingly angry about what they're seeing going on. And I think in a way that is good that people should be angry. And they should channel that anger into political action and, and trying to, you know, roll back what we've seen being rolled out over the last year. Um, but people, you know, I, I hope that when people see adverts such as that, that enough of them respond to it by going, I'm, I'm not going to be held prisoner by this kind of fear and this kind of messaging. Um, no, I think I think that has it's got a very negative uh, pushback from the public. This is just seen this this type of stuff is being seen as a, a a bridge too far. And and I think the mechanism here is this, Pierce, uh, the biggest spender, one of the biggest spenders for mainstream media outlets since the beginning of this crisis has been government. They've been buying the back pages. They've been doing the full page spreads. They've been buying the covers. They're paying above rack rates in advertising in some cases. And so the, uh, the, there's no chance of independence by the, by the media when you have this incestuous relationship between government and the press, like nothing we've ever seen before. I mean, you, you talked about yeah. the Vietnam War before. You know, the, when the press had some independence, they would put the, the faces of the soldiers who died. I'm talking about the end of the tail end of the war. And this was part of the really the anti-war effort nationally to end the Vietnam War. So the Walter Cronkites of the world, all the major networks were playing their role as independent media to bring the war to a finish by showing the dead soldiers, the dead American boys. But it's flipped now. Now the press is is doing the government's work by saying, we've passed the 100,000 death milestone and mm -hmm. Boris is sitting there solemn on the front of the sun with his with this look and then all these different death milestones so it's the i think it's inverted from what it was you know the to, the drive to end the vietnam war it's flipped now <laughs> now the government and the press 
are are working really in, in a sense targeting the minds of the public to to keep the policy going to keep the crisis going that's what it seems like to me and i, yeah. I don't you know i don't think it's an exaggeration no i mean uh, th- th- this is it's been meant said terms been used several times in in, in this talk uh, that we've been having, that things have intensified. This is a dramatic intensification, and what you're showing there on, on that slide is, is well, yeah. I mean, this is this is way this is more than Herman and Chomsky would have spoken about in the 1980s. This is very direct. This is propaganda. This is funding the media and making sure it stays on message in a very direct way. And he, I, I'm sure that the journalists in these big organisations are very conscious of of. <laughs> Of their mortgages and their pay and so on, um, and don't want to challenge it. But you know what I'd say in this point we made earlier about sort of the potential for this to be a, a moment where people wake up or where there's, there's an opportunity for, for proper change is that you know what, what I what you can you can take that those kind of examples and put it to people who are buying everything they're being told and uh, a, a full full on lockdown zero COVID. Uh, sort of um, believers is that you know this is going on the government's funding the mainstream media to push this message to you so you're getting one message um, this is based upon scientists who as you describe are very narrowly defined and it is a con- there is clear scientific controversy of over the correct response you know, the, the point I'd raised to somebody who's who's believing everything is that you know what if what if the government's wrong? What if the scientists who are advising the government are wrong? Okay, and if you allow that to be a possibility, then you realize how serious the situation is. Because if they're wrong, then all this propaganda is pushing, it's enabling, it's protecting a policy which is just wrong. Okay, and if you listen to you know the scientists or the, the great Barrington Declaration scientists, you know, and actually a lot of actually the mainstream critics of lockdown is that this policy will kill far more people than it will ever save. And that's very clear. I think they're very, very blunt about that. And and I think there are scientists who argue that the academic evidence shows that that's the case, that lockdowns, restrictions will kill more people than it will ever save, do far more harm through collateral damage. Okay, Now, if that's the case... <laughs> You know, this should be paused for thought. Um, and you know, if if you have governments paying the mainstream media to tell people something, and you have a small cabal of scientists doing the advice, and if they're all wrong, then we're witnessing a horrendous um, crime against humanity, in a sense, with this. And I and I suspect this is what we have. And this is what we're seeing. And this is what people should be asking themselves. You know, why is the government having to do this? Why is the mainstream media taking the money and behaving in this way? Um, why are the scientists who are questioning this being smeared in the mainstream media, etc.? This all of all of the alarm bells should be ringing to anybody um, in, in in their right mind with, with all of this. Um, and and I think that's you know I think that that's that's the point that. That people who have been advocating all of this response need to be challenged on now. Sort of, and this is an argument I've increasingly made. Is that because I noticed it right from the start? I noticed before I, I was very careful on on COVID nineteen initially, saying, "Well, you know, what exactly is going on?" and so on. And I raised a few questions, but as soon as as soon as I was doing that, I I, I noticed opinion leaders in the left academic clique attacking me and smearing me over social media. 
<laughs> it's like, well, where did that come from? I just asked the question and so on. And so that, that, that kind of willingness to sort of really close down any kind of questioning and, and so on has been there right from the start with COVID-19. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, this is alarm bells should be rung. If, if this is what's having to be done in order to maintain this policy, if, you know, hammering down the, the dissent, smearing, etc., um, then this, this is, this is a warning sign that, that something's not quite right here. Um, and then following on from that, a, a very big warning sign that if this is all wrong, if those scientists are wrong, and if the advice the government's pursuing and if these vested interests who are pushing uh, these policies um, don't have our best interests at heart, and that's perfectly uh, conceivable that's the case, um, then this is a very bad situation. And um, I suppose I'm being sort of mild or tame in the way I'm talking about it. I mean, I, as far as I can see, with my non-expert eye on, on what various scientists are saying, it, it doesn't look a pretty picture in terms of the collateral damage. It doesn't look a pretty picture in terms of the old people's homes and what's been going on. I, I understand from somebody does as from somebody that you know a very large proportion of, of, of infections are being picked up within hospitals. Mm. Um, my understanding is that you know the, the uh, average age of people passing away from with, with a COVID positive test is in Germany, I understand, I could be wrong, but I understand it's slightly older than the average life expectancy. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is... Same, this same is, in the UK and the US. Yeah, this is incredible. Um, so I, I, I think, um, you know, that, that there is so, so many aspects of this now. I, I think... Again, this point, where, where do you reach a point where the bubble bursts? Where do you reach a point where people realize that, yeah, it's, it's not normal for governments to be pouring all that money into the mainstream media in that way to push a particular message? Um, and, you know, there's only so far they can go to it. Well, it's because there are these dangerous conspiracy theorists out there who are trying to tell you this is all a conspiracy, etc. Uh, how long can we keep on doing that when you've got sort of very mainstream eminent scientists and academics saying, well, I think this is just the wrong policy response, <laughs> you know, and at what point um, does everyone just wake up and realize that we've walked, we've turned a very bad corner. Populations do wake up, again, historical examples, which I won't name because you always get into trouble when you do, you know, populations do wake up at some point and realize we turned a very, we turned a corner and went down a very dark alley. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're in that, that's the world we're in at the moment, um, you know, with important differences, but that, that's, that's what we're dealing with. Um, and, and it's that thing, when does the propaganda begin to just, the minds of people open up, um, I appreciate your restraint. Uh, I know you'd like to say more, but you know we're, we're really trying to appeal to um, a lot of people who might be your professional cohort, for instance, uh, or other people who work in the press, journalists, people like this. Um, so that that's the purpose of this conversation, and we're really trying to you know get 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 a little bit uh, you know deeper uh, into what's going on institutionally. Uh, talking about the psychology of it as well. Our role as citizens, uh, our relationship, our social contract 
with the government. Mm -hmm. Those are, these are all serious fundamental building blocks of uh, post enlightenment Western mm -hmm. civilization, actually. Uh, that I think uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that these things are definitely under threat right now. Mm -hmm. And not just nationally, but globally, if you consider how this is cascaded and becomes global policy, uh, de facto global policy, um, it's very serious indeed. And uh, yeah, we could we could make a lot more stronger arguments and more emotional arguments on this. And maybe we will in the future um, in another mm -hmm. discussion with other with other contributors as well. But uh, but I think that's all we're going to have time for this week. But I just wanted to thank you for staying overtime on this, Piers. Uh, it's a very important discussion. I know you're very passionate about it as well as you are about the the, the topic of propaganda. Uh, you've done such great work in this over your career. Um, but uh, before uh, before we leave, uh, do you want to give a, uh, a shout out to our, our viewers uh, with regards to anything you're working on right now or things where they can go uh, to see more of, of your work, any any stories that are really hot right now that uh, your group's working on? Well, well, the Organization for Propaganda Studies um, you can uh, has its website, um, and that's still a fledgling organization. Um, I, I would really, the, the, what I'm most kind of focused on at the moment is is the organization Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and the scandal over Duma, and of course we have a lot of briefing notes on that, and that's a live issue, and it's carrying on. We also have the working group on 9-11, the War on Terror, which is established and that's going to be starting to become more active. And that's looking generally at propaganda in relation to the War on Terror over the last 20 years, um, including 9-11 itself. Um, so, I mean, people, I, I recommend people t take a look at that. But but I, I think it, it the core of my work, I mean, the, the, the OPCW Duma issue is, is a big one. This is to do with propaganda and deception in relation to a major organization. And it links in with what we've been seeing in the last 20 years. This is a very big story and issue. So, um, you know, the work group has a lot of papers on that. But there are also other people, you know, the journalists, some journalists have covered this um, issue. Um, and there's there's more to come. There's more um, material in, in, in the pipeline on that. Um, and, and, you know, the Syrian war itself, of course, because with Biden, and this, it, it looks like it may escalate again. Mm -hmm. um, so as much as COVID is critical and dominating at the moment, um, you know, all of those other issues with propaganda and war, they're rolling on. Um, and I think one of those tricks people such as us need to keep in mind at the moment is we need to make sure we, we, we keep plowing the course on issues which we have been. We don't get distracted because um, you bet sort of as it were our enemies or our opponents are, would, are very keen to have us all distracted completely off say Syria or the global war on terror um, but it's important to keep doing the work on that doing the research and, and so on um, so I think, I think the work I'm doing with other colleagues and in, in relation to those areas I encourage people to take a look at take a look at the working group on Syria propaganda and media take a look at the OPCW and the Duma issue and, and what other people have written about that as well. Um, yeah, no, and, and this okay. this issue that we talked about today, the, the global pandemic, this can easily be parlayed into a kind of a war effort against China. Uh, we can yeah. have that conversation later, but yeah. I, you know, I, I'm sure we can have a very interesting conversation on, on that front. Yeah. So, but, um, but thank you very much 
Okay, uh, thank Robinson. you. Good to talk. Uh, very, very much appreciated. Uh, and that's all we've got time for for 21 Wire Live uh, this week. I want to thank everybody for joining us on the live stream. Uh, again, this will be available up uh, as a recording uh, up on our YouTube channel and at 21stcenturywiregut.com. Also, look at our last episodes. We had fantastic uh, segments with Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute last week and a fantastic review of the Biden foreign policy with Brian Berletic. Uh, who's also a special contributor at 21stCenturyWire.com. Phenomenal interviews. And also a former ambassador to Syria from the UK, Peter Ford, uh, as well in in a previous episode. Uh, So there's many other episodes as well. So go check those out. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Hopefully we will see you, uh, well, we'll see you on Friday with the UK Column News uh, at 1 p.m. UK time with Mike Robinson. And I'll be live on ACR with the Sunday Wire on Sunday our radio show. So join us there as well. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This has been a phenomenal conversation, very enlightening, and no doubt this is just getting the ball rolling uh, on this topic. There's so much more uh, that we need to discuss and that we will uh, in the future. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.